0: we don't look at brands just in the isolation of their category. We fundamentally have studied that brands that break away from their categories are actually defining their brand by the broadest imaginable space, right? So if you're a brand like kinds like ketchup. You're not just looking at how you're doing in the context of other shelf-stable tomato-based condiments. You're looking across how you stand in the entirety of the grocery store, right? And that's really important because if you can identify your, your competitive set as broadly as possible, it opens up more possibilities for growth.
1: Hey, everybody. It's the Data-Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm Mark. I'm Laura. Welcome back for another Hang in the Databasement. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And special thanks to our guest this week, Laura Jones, who is Chief Strategy Officer of WPP's BAV and Consulting Division BAV Group. Did I get it?
0: <laughs> you got it. You passed okay. the high test and the acronym <laughs> test.
1: We're here to talk about branding. So I, don't, so I don't want to disrespect the fact of understanding why we say all of that in this context.
2: <laughs> right. And the fact that abbreviations are, are just an, an inherent part of this, this media universe. And there's usually like six of them because all the companies are combining and, <laughs> and, and yeah, right, consuming each other and, and adding to each other's bylines.
0: Absolutely. At some point, they just kind of give up and they just say...
1: So so yeah, uh, past that, I'll throw to you for a quick intro, kind of how you find yourself there. And then we can talk a bit about WPP and all that kind of stuff for anybody who's not sort of familiar with the agency.
0: Cool. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, Excited to be here. So I've spent almost 20 years in the world of strategy, brand strategy, come out of a creative strategy background, always in big agency life. And I found myself about six, seven years ago, recognizing more and more that Data was a super important part of the branding equation, and that it was really being underutilized by many marketers. I mean, marketers today have so much data at the back end performance metrics, KPIs, analytics, campaigns, all of that. But not a lot of marketers were actually using that data further up the stream in making those initial brand strategy, brand positioning decisions. And so we like to say, at BAV, we bring data to the opinion party and we actually, through our model, are able to quantify what drives brands, what drives and grows brand developments, how to revitalize brands when they get sick and bring all of that data to, to marketers in order to help them set strategies that are going to meet their, their objectives. And, and really now the world has evolved to one of experience, right? The brand and the experience are interwoven and the brand in some ways is the experience. and so. Making sure that people understand what the sum total is of all of their marketing touch points, not just in various channels and various silos, is really important part of what we do.
1: It's it's an interesting. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about, you know, our scenario that we talk about openly on the podcast a bunch, uh, being acquired by, you know, a big company. We are we are getting to see from the inside, you know, the branding exercise that is trying to take literally hundred and eighty years of data and turn it into something. And we're like, there's so much interesting stuff, which makes it a really exciting challenge at this time. But also, I'm, I'm amazed that even at a data company, we are so behind on using data for the things that we sell data to people to do. <laughs> but I think that's just the state of the world. Like, I guess I'm lucky to professionally have been able to ride the edge of, I love how you said it, the, the, uh, the opinion party. Right, that's that's the I I talk about it often on here when we when we when we go down the agency rabbit hole. It's just that was always my least favorite part of the creative process because especially if you're in the position of the executive position of sort of saying okay we're we're going with that one and not that one. I have always had that voice in the back of my head going yeah, but that's kind of just based on like that you like it more. Uh,
2: (laughs) biases are going to pollute every decision (laughs) you know it's 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 just uh it's human human nature right
1: absolutely
0: (laughs) and no one's got a crystal ball right but um and there's tons of examples i used to back in the day i worked on the mastercard account i don't know if you remember the priceless uh you know construct that was around for many many years uh but the famous story about that campaign was that they actually put the two creative executions that and a different uh, campaign into testing and the other campaign actually did better. And then one of the executives just kind of made a, a gut decision and said, nah, I think this other one, I think we're onto something
2: here. Wow! Uh,
0: so it is a bit, I mean, all of data yeah. right is a little bit of art and science.
2: Yeah, For sure. Art and science. I mean, we always talk about kind of like testing is like the scientific method. You're always going to, you know, the cream is going to rise to the top because your your audience is going to show you what, that the right answer is so you don't necessarily have to worry about getting the right answer yourself.
1: Yeah. So, well, so before we jump into those weeds, that's, <laughs> that's really the interesting, I mean, that's where Mark and I love to play in that space of sort of like, but also we could be, you know, like... We can also talk ad campaigns. The extension of product-led growth as an idea is, you know, testing. You can run a campaign for a feature before the feature exists and people will sign up for it if you, if you do all the branding and stuff on the other side and get the test and market and... Like that, that still blows minds when, when it's a thing that Mark and I, I feel like we've always just sort of been aware of. Anyway, that's the rabbit hole. But first, let's back up to how you ended up sort of where you are, which will get us to like the size of the agency. Like I've been excited for this conversation because I've, I've put in some time at the big agencies before landing where I have. And so it's kind of like, I don't think people understand the amount of work and the amount of like thought and the amount of other things that go into these things that come out the other side as like 30-second Super Bowl spots that they go, Oh, that was funny. <laughs> you know, but like it still serves a, a real purpose. Speak to that a bit. Like how did you end up kind of in the space that you're in? And then also, I mean, you know, you're at the top at this point, right? You're working on Super Bowl commercials. That's awesome. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, you know, always, always uh, more, more to go. But yeah, so just my journey started out. I was one of those strange children that really loved wordplay, I suppose. I guess the word for it now is nerd. And I watched Bewitched as a child. Darren, good old Darren is in advertising. I just always kind of knew yeah. that um, I wanted to live in a world that you get to create um, and also make money. And so advertising was just something I always wanted to do. I actually started out in business development, um, in new business and working on pitches. And it was a really great place to just see the entirety of the agency process Happen from front to finish, especially a new business pitch. Um, you go through every single phase from strategy all the way through production, usually in the span of way too short of a time for it to <laughs> actually happen in real life. Uh, but it was really great, and I found through that process that the people I gravitated towards the most in the room were the strategists, the people that were digging into problem solving, learning, going out there and talking to people, and understanding what drove human behavior and, and insights, and so. After sleeping under my desk for the better part of a year and working 24 hours a day, um, (laughs) basically, I made a jump over into strategy and just right from there started working on some of the biggest brands in the industry Um, Mercedes Benz, as I mentioned, I worked on MasterCard, Verizon for many years. And I always was fascinated by the emergence of all of the digital tactics and the proliferation of data, but really, What does it all mean? How do you tie it together at the highest level and actually make sense of it all? So people really are entering into what they understand to be essentially what a brand is, right? Which is the promise of an experience. And it can get really easy, as you just said, to get lost in the weeds and the woods and all the cool things that we can do with technology. But how do you ladder that all up and, and tell stories and actually make meaningful connections with people through? not only products and services, but just as brands have evolved to stepping in for government, stepping in for trust, consumer trust. Brands have really... People are brands now, right? Every single account you follow on take your choice of social platform, that's a brand. And so uh, it's really been interesting and exciting to watch the space evolve and to help marketers kind of wade through and sift through it all. Yeah. So I've been been having fun. I actually find... uh, your point about transformation, really a brand and a strategy starts on a page and the process by which getting that off the page, out of people's brains circulated and embraced by an organization to where it actually is impacting behavior, impacting someone asks, Hey, wh- where do you work? What do they do? Et cetera. All of that is really a, a big challenge in change management. And so understanding not only how the mechanics of that work from a marketing ecosystem perspective, but from a change management ecosystem perspective and from an internal company-wide communications, that can be as important as external paid, owned, earned media. And really putting those pieces together. We're asking a lot of marketers today, especially CMOs. We're asking them to lead transformations. We're asking them to transcend silos across data, technology, IT, infrastructure, people, to some extent, people functions and organizations. And the amount of collaboration that that takes is no small feat, especially when there's multiple completing priorities uh, and metrics and ways to be measured. So I really am an integrator at heart, and I love bringing together all of those different streams to make progress.
2: You said a lot of good stuff there, I'm one, and I almost wanted to, to take... <laughs> Uh, the the idea of change management um, kind of connected to one of the original statements you had made about the kind of your reason for being and what you're doing at, at BAV right now is revitalizing brands when they get sick. Um, so that 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 just uh, stuck out to me. I'm curious, you know, when you're when you're talking about Fortune 500s brands like Mercedes, Mastercard, Verizon, I think the external perception is that those are those are very healthy brands, but they may have the internal perception that we're something is wrong, we're sick from the inside. you know how do you go about auditing or, or diagnosing the, the biggest challenge that a brand has in terms of its strategy or, or presentation to the market?
0: Yeah, great question. So at BAV, in order to diagnose and understand where a brand sits in the marketplace, we study it over 30 years. We've been collecting data in the marketplace and we essentially measure a brand on four pillars of true brand equity. We've got differentiation, which is kind of like it sounds, how different a brand is, but more deeply than that kind of meaning a brand has. We've got relevance, which is how well it fits into people's lives. We've got esteem, which is how well-respected a brand is. And then we've got knowledge, which is one step deeper than just awareness, it's familiarity. And from those 4 pillars, we actually are able to plot on what we call a power grid, essentially. It's your standard two by two, where a brand sits in culture. And that's really important because we don't look at brands just in the isolation of their category. We fundamentally have studied that brands that break away from their categories are actually defining their brand by the broadest imaginable space, right? So if you're a brand like Heinz, like ketchup, you're not just looking at how you're doing in the context of other shelf-stable tomato-based condiments, you're looking across how you stand in the entirety of the grocery store, right? And that's really important because if you can identify your your competitive set as broadly as possible, it opens up more possibilities for growth. And I don't know if you saw, speaking of ketchup, Doritos is actually coming out with a ketchup.
2: No. Yeah. Did not catch that. No. <laughs> that could be worth it just off the
1: initial pop, get out of people like me that are going to go, oh, yeah, I'll try it. <laughs> exactly. I
2: mean, their partnership. Taco with Bell gets me with that all the time.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Try it. The amount of uh, money we spent door dashing Taco Bell to our house is
1: <laughs> pandemic it's problems.
0: Shocking. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, we approach um, where brands sit from a very quantitative point of view because the first thing about knowing where you're heading is knowing where you're starting from. So that's a really important part of our methodology.
1: We have a really interesting situation kind of what you made what you made me think of is it feels immediately like just an opportunity to talk about ourselves but like look it's what we're living through <laughs> DnB's is a b2b company and so i have a lot of pitches i give that are very like okay but that doesn't work on b2b and then mm. we have to kind of and then i end up trying to decide how far down the rabbit hole of explaining modern communications to people i need to get to sell this pitch upstream and it gets to this idea of, of, of like there's really cool stuff on the brand side that we don't Really play in around like social sentiment and stuff like that. But then also, now we live right at the edge where it's encroaching on B2B and people will flatly say, Oh, that tactic doesn't work for B2B. And it's sort of like, Yes, but it works for brands. And we have to start thinking even of of crusty old B2B brands the way that we think of consumer brands because you're still just trying to reach people. And so the competition game now is, Yeah you are Nike even though what you sell is weird b2b enterprise software like and and getting that that's the ch- i guess the change management part right like <laughs> get to like okay how do you how do you sell that idea upstream because it's such a weird paradigm shift for people that are
2: used to how marketing used to be
1: to where we are now
2: it's rejiggering it's like it's it's that tesla tesla is not a car company they're a data company right right or a you know climate change company Or climate change. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like a sustainability.
0: Absolutely. We see that all the time. And you said what I think are the magic words and what we, we say all the time, right, is B2B is really just people making decisions, right? The B2B sales arena. And you're competing with Headspace and mental availability with B2B brands, just like you are for any other brand that they're putting on their grocery list or that they're looking to purchase a car, etc. And there's just so much crossover now with brands, to your point about Tesla. When you think about uh, enterprise-level brands, uh, Microsoft just came out with a clothing line. So you really need to think about even B2B brands in... Overall, a very holistic way, and the B 2 B brands that do have the most power and are in the leadership quadrant in our study are actually brands that cross over into culture, that cross over and make connections with people just outside of the very specific silo. It's funny. I was looking at Forbes or Fortune, one of the you know top brands list, and my how that list has changed in the last ten years. It's all data service providers, and a lot of brands probably that your traditional uh, household name, let's call it, have never heard of, right? But those are the brands that and the types of business models that are leading today's economy. And you've got to build those brands, nurture those brands, and think about those brands holistically. They don't exist in a vacuum. You know, when you, you leave your job as a Someone that buys B2B products and services, you don't take that hat off and park it. I mean, you probably don't even leave an office anymore, right? Um, Especially with how all of the hybrid working is happening. And so it's really important to, to think about that. Even we do some work in the healthcare space and we say, okay, you know, what works from a regulatory perspective with doctors or with nurses or HCPs, those are people too, right? Those people have families. Those people are... Googling things just like everyone else. And so it's really important to keep in mind the entirety of the expectations set by the marketing ecosystem and all the other experiential places in their life. And then people wanting that same experience in how they're being marketed to as a quote-unquote B2B
1: decision maker. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which everyone in our marketing space knows exactly what you mean when you say that. <laughs> like uh, important term of what? art if you want to make it in B2B marketing. Uh, <laughs> so stakeholders and decision makers. Yep.
2: Um, just wanted to add on this, on the stakeholders, decision makers and how, you know, the similarities and differences between between B2B and, and thinking about people as, you know, individual decision makers. It's that when you have these when you have teams, when you're talking about a B2B team, it's like it's not only hey, does, is this is this Apple going to work for for my smoothie when I bring it home from the grocery store? It's you're thinking about is this tool the right tool for my development team? Is it the right tool for my sales team to you know downstream the insights we need or to get reporting on the cadence or the predictive modeling you know that we want to understand about our CRM? All these things you you kind of you can't just think about yourself in a silo and how you. You want to make uh, or use a tool, or use a service, or a vendor. It's like this. This has got to touch multiple people, so I've got to get buy-in now, and and that makes the job of the salesperson, I think, that much harder because you've got to be able to kind of shift and, and move between these different roles and, and understand how your product um, or your brand can serve you know, multiple teams. You're not just convincing one person of their needs state. You're evangelizing a whole suite of solutions and having to kind of. Master different levels of expertise, so you can convince different uh, disciplines that you are you're the right answer for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not to be discounted. I know you know people are people, and all of that. In some ways, though, we can't ignore the fact that these are complex, multi level decisions that oftentimes can be not so easy to implement, right? And so you've got to have a lot of alignment. I am in such awe of the role of solutions architect um, because I, I find a lot of similarities in between a solutions architect and what I do as a as a, a strategist right which is you've got multiple different let's say tendrils of a certain project and there's so many codependencies and as you start to unpack, What implementing a solution in one place does, you need to think about all of the things that it's impacting and how are those going to be impacted and how do you bring everything together into a cohesive ecosystem? You know, I think obviously, you know, sales 101, right? The most important thing is the speed that you can move when there's trust. And so making sure that you understand not only the technical aspects of what needs to be done, but also the stakeholder mapping of who needs to be influenced and what are the challenges they're likely to overcome. And ultimately, how can you build that trust? So when things go wrong, because let's face it, in implementation, things always go wrong. <laughs> um, you know, you, you make sure that that they know that you will be right there to make sure that it goes off without a hitch or that you can quickly troubleshoot. But I think, again, that's where it comes down to having the added layer of, sure, all of that can be done on like a hand-to-hand combat sort of lay- layer. Um, <laughs> we used to say, you know, I'm sure it's probably one of the oldest uh, little platitudes in, in the B2B book, but it's like no one ever got fired for buying IBM, right? It's just kind of like, when you think about that statement, right? There was There was this air cover that the brand provided even in the B2B setting that just said, sure. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. GCP, like it's got Google in it, right. I'm going to go for them. Like, you know, making sure that there's, um, you know, it's an interesting, you look at Kendrill and spinning off, uh, it's kind of like, Oh, intre- like how, how are they going to do a brand that came out of a huge conglomerate that has such invested brand equity? You know, you've got to think about like, what is the promise that you're making to people when they're buying from you outside of just that those day-to-day people that they're interacting with? And where are they seeing other evidence in the real world that that brand and that company lives up to what it's promising that it's going to execute for you?
1: Yeah. So like what you're talking about is the thing that comes up all the time on the podcast, which is just the complexity of everything now and how marketing... Marketing looks way more like engineering than it did 10 years ago than it did two years ago at this point, because the pandemic has accelerated so much with remote work and the adoption of digital alternatives for some percentage of people who are just never going to go back, like me. And it really, it's like like your analogy earlier when you, you were talking about a brand as a living organism, it's just sort of the extrapolation of that thing of like, okay, imagine how you know complex that is with all the data we have for marketing. It's even bigger if you're talking about a giant brand with massive awareness out there, all kinds of different plays in, in the field. That becomes the analogy. And so a lot of times the branding, I would imagine for you exercise is come in and 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 like thinking of it like healthcare is the right analogy because it's sort of like, okay, we can't we can't okay. The most aggressive answer is rebrand. Let's take Bell Telecom and turn it into Verizon. Like that's a pretty big project. <laughs> you could also try to increase the credibility of Bell or whatever became Verizon, like over time by deploying a bunch of tactics. But like it's it's incredibly complex. And so the thing of, okay, do you, do, you, do you pick to turn the ship or do you pick to reboot the whole thing? Gets to one of the notes I had before you even, before you showed up, prep notes. This is my favorite. It's <laughs> into it like, yeah, now I can talk about this thing that I was stoked about. Uh, I watched some chunks of your, your talk from South by Southwest in 2017. And the thing that stood out to me, because it's kind of where I think I we are right now inside of D and B, is like, okay, is it time to diverge from the brand to do another thing? And then, you know, we fall back in, or is it a like I love that slide about divergent versus convergent because I find myself often the one who's pitching the divergent opinion and it's not popular because <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, we could reverse rebrand and Pour everything into this one that you just bought instead of the hundred and eighty-year-old stalwart institution. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> obviously, it's not going to happen, but it's a worthwhile thought experiment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know what, what we would do in that case, and many times, is we look at both equities of the brands and the complementary aspects, right? And. Branding, especially brand architecture, right? It used to always be this binary. It was kind of a house of brands or a branded house, right? And it's moved beyond that to this notion of agile branding and really thinking about it as a brand as an operating system. And so what is the open source platform? People can't just have a brand shoved down their throat anymore. Whether it's a consumer brand or it's a brand that you work for or you were acquired and you feel like you were a part of one organization that had all these values and all of a sudden you don't just wake up the next day and like you know the men in black kind of thing comes across your Neuralizer. eyes.
1: Yeah. yeah and you totally forget <laughs>
0: about it and you're like, okay, now I am the N B. You know, it doesn't work yeah. like that. And I think that's something that should be celebrated and acknowledged because the brand transformation process through that, it can be long and people can lose the plot along the way. But the most important thing to remember is that, like you said, a brand is a living, breathing organism. A brand doesn't sit on a page. We like to say FBAV: burn your brand book. I mean, brand books, if, I don't know if anyone <laughs> remembers back in the day, you get like a 50-page guidelines. And this is how they'll, you know, obviously oh yeah. from a consistent oh yeah. standpoint, that's it's important to have a starting point. But really, a brand being a promise in the experience and also making sure that it's a values-led brand, a brand that gives people enough of a runway to feel like they can be a part of something. And then acknowledging that within a company, there's so much diversity, or at least hopefully more and more there should be. There's diversity along all the different dimensions. And there's no one-size-fits-all approach. I mean, think about the the world of, of return to office versus hybrid work, right? I mean, that battle is is never going to have a majority opinion, right? There's just always... Just like audience insights and, and segmentations and personas, that all exists within a company as well. And so thinking about multiple entry points that all hang together under a set of consistent mission values, but then leaving it open to some extent to interpretation if how you want to be innovators and connect with your audiences is through this awesome, fun podcast, and I'm so happy to, to be here and be talking to you and have all sorts of content, that works. If you want to have a super traditional salesforce driven, you know, let's have account reps and go out to lunch, like that works too. But it's no longer a one-size-fits-all approach. And the more diverse the tactics can be, the more vibrant brands can be, and the more opportunities you have to connect with people how they want to be connected. It's kind of let's say golden rule of marketing 2.0, right? Don't treat people how you want to be treated, treat people how they want to be treated and reach people how they
1: want to be reached. For anyone who wants to check out a brand book, NASA's brand book is open source. You can go just down or it's not, it's not open source with the public. If you're a US yeah. citizen, you can just go download it. I have like a like a hard cover bound version of it that I paid for in Kickstarter. It has all like you know (laughs) when to use the worm logo versus the meatball logo, and it's like, yeah. So so I think the 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 other thing you mentioned that that I'm interested to chase, if if only again for sort of selfish reasons because we're dealing with it internally, is the internal versus external piece. A thing that I've I've found myself talking about a lot is the extent to which, like, if you're at a big enough company, a company the size of D and B, our team members are a statistically significant population. So if we want to test whether or not, you know, giveaways and raffles will work on the general public as a lead gen mechanism, we can do it by by testing our own sort of internal population. Like like I advocate for things like, yeah, well let's let's test out the email templates in there first for the new branding stuff and let them see it first, everybody feels included. We can get feedback internally from, you know, at, at DNB it's 8,000 people we get only a portion of that we're running a statistically significant test on whether or not this brand resonates you know it, it people i think like marketers are used to the idea of okay now you have to evangelize the messaging I- internally like we're used to that part i think we're not quite used to the extent to which it's this sort of ongoing community project now potentially if you want to really leverage the stuff that i'm talking about
0: absolutely and a lot of that goes back to organizational structures, right? More and more, we find, and you saw that in classes classic examples of, uh, you know, a brand would run in, an ad on the Super Bowl and talk about pay equity, right? And then, or gender equality, but then their board was was not representative, or they didn't have equal pay, right? And so. The alignment, the alignment of those things internally and externally, is really important. And a lot of times, it comes back to the way that organizations are structured. I mean, think about the people function, right? And chief people officer or human resources, depending on on how it's being called, right?
2: So many names.
0: So many names. So many names. Uh, And sure, you might all sit on executive committee together, but how many times are you doing ad boards and ad reviews? with the people function and saying, how do we think this is going to play internally or asking those people to be experts in segmentation or know the audience internally, as well as you need to know it externally from a sales and a marketing perspective. And so that's really where the role of a, of a marketer is even more important to understand not only external audiences, but the internal ones as well. And it's a lot, it's a lot to ask. So much. Any one person, (laughs) right? Or any one function within an organization because at a certain level, all of the lines blur together, but it can really make the difference. And that's why I think we see a lot of, you know, success overnight, seemingly, although nothing happens with the snap of the fingers with with smaller kind of mission-based organizations that go from, you know, zero to 60 hockey stick growth is because it's just much easier to control the message with fewer people in a smaller environment. But at some point to scale, uh, everyone needs to kind of get that chain of both internal and external communications aligned. And to your point, a lot of times what it looks like internally is just a bunch of emails, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like how do we communicate to all these, these audiences internally and not send a bunch of emails? Are you producing your internal content, your all hands meetings, your event activations to the same extent that you would produce them for an external client because your employees are arguably one of your most important audiences to make sure that you're getting people on board with the mission.
1: And then you led me right to my favorite thing to say on here that it's like the essence of my take on modern media is that essentially like (laughs) the more hyperbolic way I say it is nobody's allowed to suck on camera anymore. (laughs) Right? Like, like, Every company is a media company to some degree because your competition in market for attention share on LinkedIn, if you want to amplify your your content, is brands that at least work with the agencies that do this stuff and they approach it in that way. Where, you know, the the thing I share most often lately is Apple's keynote presentations. Like they really went, okay, this isn't in person anymore, then it has to look like a, like a, like a blockbuster movie yeah and it, and it works they do it really well but the modern landscape is like okay you could have it might have to be 20 percent, not as cool as apple stuff because i like i don't have time to go fly a drone around my, my <laughs> building but you can get pretty close between agencies and internal resources and it's sort of especially in the b2b space there's a lot of reorienting but bluntly like the thing just needs to be flashier nobody's going to care
0: Oh yeah. Like what's your thirst trap linked in post, you know? Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's your, your, uh, your VIP, you know, con line experience. What's, how how cool are you with your mimosa on your yacht? Uh,
1: (laughs) For sure. So so just to, to jam on a broader topic for a minute before we get out of here. What's your favorite ad of all time? Or the first ad that you remember. Oh, is maybe oh, another the lens. First
0: ad that I remember. Wow, gosh, let's let's throw it back. Well, I am a child of the '80s, and so the jingle is just ever prominent in in my mind. Um, I, I don't know. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna go with Go Go My Walking Pup.
1: Oh my god, I forgot about that.
0: I'm walking <laughs> Go Go down, down the street she wags her tail uh, at the friends we meet
1: There was the demographic for more like you know the boyed up version of that so it was
2: like you know a monster that can bust
1: out of its chains or whatever yeah. did,
2: you know teenage mutant ninja turtles pizza thrower for yeah. sure
1: oh yeah <laughs> the the best one of all time is tough because i think like this is this is the magic of the whole thing to me like the ones that tell stories that really, I, I go back, I watch, I have a playlist of ads I watch on YouTube every once in a while because I'm just like, they make me happy. Like, there's just, there's a bunch of really good Nike ones. But the first one that made me really feel like, okay, there's a thing here other than just like get my attention for 30 seconds. It was Nike's, there's also an 80s one, Nike's Mars Blackman ads, uh, the, the Spike Lee ones. Money, it's got to be the shoes. <laughs> that was the first time that I was like, ooh, this feels like film school now, instead of just like trying to sell me a, a stupid consumer packaged good.
0: Yeah. I've always I've always loved that uh, all of advertising is really just artists masquerading as business people <laughs> trying to mm-hmm. trying to commercialize.
2: hundred
1: uh, percent. Trying to make a music playing. video with LeBron James. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to be yeah.
0: celebrities and and um uh, and make art. But um no yeah i mean it's 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 funny right now we'd be asking each other like what's your favorite tiktok but um you know it's funny there's i was reading an article in the times about how all there's these doctors on tiktok that are aiming to use the platform to debunk medical misinformation and some of them are spending like upwards of 20 hours just to create one post and so Back to what you were saying about how many people does it take to create one piece of content? You know, the good content, it can take a while and making it seem effortless and authentic is really why our industry still exists, I think, and making sure that it ladders up to something, sells something, makes people feel a certain way. It's all really, really important. I don't think the professionals are going away just yet.
2: I think one one of my initial ideas for this uh, talk was the anatomy of a super bowl campaign. And we've kind of been in, in, in and around it. I don't know if we've gotten deep into the into the guts of the Super Bowl campaign, but I'm, I'm curious, what do you, you think in your experience, who has the hardest job in an ad agency in creating that campaign? Is it oh, the CMO? Is it the <laughs> is
0: really it the editor? <laughs> that's a really tough question.
2: I stole it from Reddit, so it's not I, I can't take credit. Are we talking, 100 duck-sized are we horses. Internal? Yeah. Or are we
0: talking the the entire ecosystem, client side, and agency?
2: I would say on the agency. So just just on the agency side. So for people who are thinking, who I'm, I'm more, you know, thinking about, you know, people who are, are intrigued by what you're saying, who want to em, embody that role that you are in, who want want to become an SVP, who want to lead these types of campaigns. You know, what what advice would you give them?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I would say that in order to make a campaign, and I'll say a campaign now and not an ad because I think that, you know, the days of the 32nd Super Bowl spot are long, long, long gone. It really is an interconnected, multi platform ecosystem that starts way before the game. And if you do it right, goes way after, right? Uh, start way earlier than you think you need to. The consensus building, the coalition building, start with an actual human truth, not just as it's seemingly so. Sure, you can buy splashy celebs, you can, you can buy all the eyeballs, but really the work that's going to resonate hits on some sort of intersection of cultural nuance, um, representation, really, you know, ultimately, why is the idea of a one-stop shop Super Bowl ad a little bit of just again, one piece? Of the entire pie is because the fragmentation, not only of media, but the diversity of audiences, um, making sure that it's representative. I think it can be really tough, especially now, to be that person that's an upstander in the room, making sure you know you've you've seen probably worst case scenarios of brands messing it up, right? Because there weren't those people along the journey to ask the hard questions to say, have we talked to? Different groups of people? Have we made sure that all viewpoints are being represented? Or uh, from a cultural lens, are we making sure that we're treating things appropriately, et cetera? And then obviously, testing is important, but making sure that ultimately you are making meaning for a brand and providing a vessel that can just be a launching off point for many other things And, and ultimately the experience. Right. The experience is the brand these days. So making sure that you've got your entire journey mapped out, where that thing goes, where it leads to, where it comes from, and how you're going to use that to really enrich the
1: perspective and the lives of people. That sounds like a pretty good place to wrap it mm-hmm. up. I have <laughs> like our best conversations. I have a <laughs> bunch of post-its, so we'll have to have you back to talk about some of the more in <laughs> the weed stuff. We glanced off the top of. This is great. Thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us, Laura. Where where can people find you if they want to talk to you about any of this stuff?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hit me up, laura.jones at theavgroup.com or check me out, Lap Jones, wherever you find your social content.
1: Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again. And thanks, everybody, for joining us for another Data Driven Marketer. I'm Adam. I'm
2: Mark.
0: I'm Laura. Thanks, everyone.
1: Take it easy, everybody.
2: Thanks for listening to the Data-Driven Marketer. Our show is produced by Jessica Jacobson and Dan Salcius. This episode was edited by Steve Kosh. The Data-Driven Marketer is sponsored by Netwise, a Dun & Bradstreet company. Any views or opinions expressed in this episode do not represent the views or opinions of Netwise or Dun & Bradstreet.